Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you are an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then SAMPI might be the ideal partner for you. SAMPI is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how SAMPI can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit SAMPI's website at nasampi.org or consider attending one of SAMPI's conferences such as CAMEX, the largest and most comprehensive composites and advanced materials event for products, solutions, networking, and advanced industry thinking. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Today I'm talking to Robin Haig, who is the lead engineer at the rocket startup Skyrora in Edinburgh, Scotland. The goal of Skyrora is to provide a dedicated launch vehicle for smaller satellites that currently need to piggyback onto larger missions and often do not have access to their ideal orbit. The UK is a world leader in the small satellite business with Glasgow and Scotland building more satellites than any other city in Europe. But there's currently a gap in providing a launch service for these satellite companies. Skyrora hopes to fill this gap in the market, and with a prospective launch site in northern Scotland, potentially has great access to polar and sun-synchronous orbits. So in this episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, Robin and I talk about the history of British rocketry, the benefits of using hydrogen peroxide as a propellant, the role of 3D printing in modern rocket engines, and the future of Skyrora. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Skyrora's lead engineer, Robin Haig. Okay, so Robin, I'm really excited to be speaking to you today. Um, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and, uh, to, to come and talk to you. So before we start speaking uh, about Skyrora and the rocket that you're building, I'd like to give you, give our listeners uh, a chance to be, perhaps get, you know, a brief overview of your background and how you ended up at Skyrora. Certainly. Um, well, I, um, I studied physics and space technology um, at Salford in Manchester. And uh, through that, I had the opportunity to get involved in rocket propulsion. I was um, part of a team <clears throat> Part of a team that was working towards the X Prize, although we um, we didn't get very close before the prize was ultimately won, we did manage to do some quite interesting stuff with engine developments because 
uh, really for, for any launch vehicle, it's the starting point, uh, the engine to be able to really go somewhere. So uh, we uh, created uh, a one and a quarter ton thrust liquid oxygen and rubber hybrid. Initially, we had hoped to go towards hybrids because, well, um, it was almost a fashion at the turn of the century. And um, for that matter, in theory, they have uh, technological advantages, sort of operational advantages. The, one, of the, one of the propellants is solid, one's fluid, so it should be. But in practice, they tend to be rather more challenging to get right, as Virgin Galactic have found over the last decade or so. Um, so um, after the initial work on this, this LOX rubber bioliquid, um, we moved on to three-ton thrust LOX kerosene. Uh, uh, yes, sorry, the other one was hybrid. We moved on to a bioliquid. Um, and uh, ultimately, we were able to do uh, to run a chamber for the duration we needed, just just short of a minute, uh, repeatedly, uh, without damage to the chamber, without having to do anything on uh, to to reuse it. Uh, of of course, the impetus went out of all of the surprise teams uh, once um, uh, scale composites. Well, Marvier, which is I think it was uh, itself the the organisation that Paul Allen put together with scale composites. Once they won the X Prize. Uh, all the other teams really sort of fell by the wayside somewhat. So uh, I've then, in the meantime, I've been in a variety of uh, design engineering, um, uh, robotics, uh, nuclear inspection robotics, and a bit of popular science presentation as well, and that sort of stuff. So uh, now it's so exciting that there's uh, this increase in launcher projects. There's the opportunity to get back to, to aerospace and uh, to be involved in creating launch vehicles actually in the UK and uh, more engine testing again. Just to some technical bits. So you said that you were developing a hybrid engine. So just to give, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a background of what a typical rocket engine looks like. Typically, you have either a solid rocket engine or you have a liquid rocket engine where both the oxidizer and the fuel are either both solid or both liquid. And then now it sounds that in this case, you had a liquid Oxidized, oxidizer, that's liquid oxygen, and then a solid fuel. What's the benefits of that? Um, because uh, the propellants, in theory, the advantages should be because the propellants are in two physical, different physical phases, uh, they will only react in the particular conditions uh, when the combustion chamber is up and running. However, uh, and and because your fuel, um, it can be done the other way around as well, but it's most commonly the fuel is the solid. Uh, it forms the lining of the combustion chamber. You don't have another set of tanks and valves and flow system and everything to to transfer that propellant. Um, however, it in practice it's very difficult to get them to uh, run consistently. Every propellant combination has its own. Uh, burn rate that has to be calibrated first before you can then go on and develop the engine. And um, I, I think in a, in a large part it has been responsible for the, the delay we've seen uh, with Virgin Galactic was the fact that they'd settled on the hybrid originally after the XPRIZE, uh, which uh, I appreciate that they had gone for originally for the same reasons that the team I was part of had also gone towards the hybrid. Um, but uh, uh, in Skyrora, we're biliquid, 
Um, Bioliquid engines have got a much longer history. They are more versatile and it's uh, much more straightforward to ensure proper mixing, proper performance, throttleability, stability, and all, all that um, that you want in a launch vehicle. Yeah, so you mentioned Skyrora um, and the kind of increasing launcher capability that the UK is trying to develop. So just to kick things off about Skyrora, what is Skyrora's mission? And so particularly, what is the kind of problem that Skyrora is, ad is addressing in the kind of space launcher market? Certainly. So um, the opportunities for the, the, the route to orbit, uh, particularly, of course, thanks to SpaceX, as is getting better and better for large payloads. But at the same time, we're seeing a burgeoning in small satellites uh, because of the tremendous increase in capability in uh, computing power in sensors that has been going on, of course, for decades and continues to do so. Small satellites and small space probes are getting more and more capable. And you can do tasks that once required hundreds of kilos, maybe even tons in, in just a few kilos. But there's still no really good way of getting spacecraft like that up. Um, they either the, the really small end will either have to go as part of large cluster launches. So recently, the uh, Indian Space Agency launched a very large number of CubeSats. I think it was uh, maybe 150, 100 like that. Um, or alternative, get rideshare. Um, both Ariane 5 and SpaceX, in particular, offer rideshare that I'm aware of for smaller payloads. So once the primary payload is gone, then uh, it is accounted for. Any spare space or lifting capability can be filled up with other payloads. But of course, um, with both these routes, you're not in full control of your schedule. You're dependent upon other people's payloads, other people's timelines. And with the rideshare, you're completely dependent upon the progress of the large payload, which could suffer its own delays, could put you back, and you're not necessarily getting to the orbit you want to. There is some flexibility. But, um, what we hope to do, and others, I know there's, there's, there's a number of companies which are looking at this, we want to support that niche um, uh, of uh, micro, we, we can certainly do nano, although we'd still be looking at clusters, but smaller clusters, um, uh, micro and small satellite launch payloads ranging up to around 300 kilos. So we can offer a dedicated, versatile, responsive launch capability for payloads of that size, instead of having to be dependent on um, fitting in on larger, larger launches. Or ultimately, of course, if you really, really needed it up, you just have to pay for one massive launch vehicle just for your small payload. So we hope to be able to, to help with that niche. And the reason that we're starting here and now, we're headquartered in Edinburgh, and uh, uh, is that the UK and uh, is a world leader in small satellites in these small payloads. And uh, Scotland is actually developing quite a, a, a specialization cluster around Clyde Space and um, Spire and uh, now Alba Orbital coming along, there's there's a, a real sort of core of interest among, uh, around the Scottish Central Belt. So, and our prospective launch sites are in Scotland too. So uh, this is a, a great time and place when you combine that all together with the UK government's new 
interest in space launch, in filling in this hole in our capability. Uh, so that, that's what we're looking to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so you did mention the, the hole in the capability and you mentioned, so you have Clyde Airspace up in Glasgow, I think, who've been for a number of years, been very much at the forefront of the kind of micro satellite, small satellite systems. And even in the in the south of the UK, we've got in Surrey, we've got some uh, satellite capabilities. So Skyrora seems to be basically closing the gap of actually being able to launch these things into space. But then why why launch rockets from northern Scotland? Is that a particularly good spot for launching smaller satellites? So there's a number of advantages. Um, and yes, of course, uh, Surrey Satellite is the the origin really of, uh, of the UK's uh, small payload capability. They're, they're, they're the people that really started it off. And uh, we, we hope to work with them as well in future. Um, being able to launch payloads within the UK uh, offers uh, cost, uh, logistic, and um, sort of uh, international transport advantages. Uh, aerospace payloads tend to be more subject, subject to a variety of restrictions and uh, processes if they're going to cross borders. So the chance for um, these payloads to be both built uh, and launched within one country within the UK offers an advantage. Um, and Scotland is actually, is well-placed for polar and sun-synchronous orbits, which are uh, a big part of this, mar this market. Um, we can't do anything eastwards, of course, by our location, but we have, um, we have good opportunities for those, that those ranges are around the polar orbit. Um, and uh, hopefully in future, uh, we certainly intend our system to be as self-contained and um, uh, portable that we may be able to look at equatorial launch sites for the system as, as the as the market develops as our capability develops but our initial focus is all on um, on Skyrora XL launched into polar and sun-synchronous orbits from the UK and um, we have been looking at the weather of course that's something which people always wonder about is launching uh, uh, sending launch vehicles from the north of Scotland and um, it is uh, a much more stable climate than you might expect from, from Scotland's reputation. And so we expect to be able to operate uh, as frequently as we need. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah, so looking at your website, I've seen that um, the Black Arrow, which is kind of, you know, a famous UK rocket, seems to have been an inspiration for Skyrora. Could you perhaps provide some background on what the Black Arrow was and uh, how Skyrora has been influenced by its design? Yes, certainly. So, uh, Black Arrow was the uh, UK's sole um, satellite launch vehicle, uh, developed by a, a, a combined effort, as I understand it, of the aircraft establishment, which was our um, our equivalent, really, of uh, NACA or NASA or uh, DARPA, which uh, it was a, a long-standing organisation and now continues to uh, continues to exist in the form of kinetic and uh, the, the, the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. It was uh, sort of privatised and split up in the, the 90s. Uh, but RAE and Saunders Row um, aircraft company from the, the Isle of Wight, who were a remarkable company, who um, uh, in, their, in their relatively short history built uh, flying giant flying boats, the biggest flying boat that was ever built in the UK, uh, the first hovercraft, 
and then Black Knight suborbital uh, launch vehicle, which was used for uh, suborbital research, and led to Black Arrow. So they built, as well as so flying boats, hovercrafts, and the UK's own sole so far launch vehicle. Uh, Black Arrow stood about 12 meters tall, but um, it was able to put about 150 kilos, I think, into, into orbit. And it continued a rather unusual propellant combination, which was a characteristic of the UK program, uh, which is uh, partly where our uh, connection. We don't have a direct technological connection, but it is an inspiration and uh, and a source of information because there's a lot of it which is uh, uh, is a lot of the technology is available public record. Um, in the 50s, the RAE program picked hydrogen peroxide and kerosene. Uh, so hydrogen peroxide is the oxidizer instead of liquid oxygen. Um, and the the Black Knight, which was the sub single stage suborbital precursor to Black Arrow used it uh, and then Black Arrow used it and um, it's what we're using because it gives us certain advantages both in the vehicle design and in operation. Uh, hydrogen peroxide is um, water plus, it's H2O2 and uh, it, it um, has fallen by the wayside somewhat of in the more recent decades because as a bi-liquid, you don't get quite as good a performance as you do with liquid oxygen. And as a monopropellant, which it can also be used as, you don't get as good a performance as hydrazine. However, it's much uh, more convenient to deal with than either of those two oxidizers, well, but than liquid oxygen or hydrazine as a monopropellant because it's storable. It's uh, an, an ambient temperature propellant. It's about 50% denser than liquid oxygen and it runs in very high oxidizer to fuel ratios. So um, if you see, uh, if people Google uh, Black Arrow and uh, look at the cutaway drawings that will, they will inevitably come across, the vehicle is almost all oxidizer tank because Black Arrow was running on eight to one oxidizer to fuel of this dense um, oxidizer. So the, the kerosene tanks end up look like little uh, tiny little ellipses at the bottom. So it makes for a very compact, a very efficient, a very small vehicle. Um, as I say, it's also possible to use it as a monopropellant. Uh, if you pass hydrogen peroxide over a silver mesh, it falls apart spontaneously into 600 degree steam and oxygen. So that's what the Bell jets, the, the Bell rocket belt um, flies on, uh, like the, uh, the, the classic, um, Olympic or James Bond rocket pack that uses hydrogen peroxide as a model of propellant. Uh, but what that can do for us, for our engines, for, for our launch vehicle, is make for flawless ignition. You incorporate a catalyst into the top of the engines, and that means that to light your engine, you just have to turn on the peroxide, and then it is already hot and hot and oxygenated enough that when you add the kerosene, it just runs. You don't have to have spark ignition or um, other special fluids to get it running. It will start up uh, smoothly and directly. And you can run your pumps. This is everything that uh, Black Arrow did, all this sort of thing. You can run your turbo pump off solely the steam that's being generated by decomposing peroxide. So you don't have to deal with 
a hot turbine. You don't have to deal with the mixture ratio for that turbine. And uh, uh, ultimately, of course, you, you could you can use the peroxide as a monopropellant system for maneuvering in species comes to it, although that's not something that we're, we're, we have on plan at the moment. So although, say, it doesn't give you quite the same ultimate theoretical performance, it makes for a simpler, smaller, more com compact vehicle, more convenient vehicle, uh, better starting, better pumping. For these size of launches, the cost to orbit is always going to be higher because it, there's less economy of scale. What we're, what we can offer is the convenience, the responsiveness, the dedicated launch. Um, but to make sure that we're competitive, because everyone, uh, everyone has to look to, to the the big, the big thing of SpaceX and how cheap they're going to get. Um, we have to design for quick, effective manufacture. We have to consider the logistics of the whole program to make sure that we're as streamlined and cost effective as possible. And this, as I say, these days rather unusual propellant combination, which is inspired by the UK history by Black Arrow of the past, um, helps us with these logistics, with this manufacturability. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really fascinating. I've never had it explained so clearly before. So yeah, thanks a lot for that. That was really cool. Um, so as you as you just mentioned, um, to be able to compete with the big programs like SpaceX, you need to really look at the entire process, getting the manufacturing costs down. And that kind of resonates with one of the things that I read on your website, that what you're trying to do is to combine proven technology, which is perhaps going back to the propellant combination, uh, and advanced engineering methods. So what are the things that uh, you want to improve on then in terms of the uh, in terms of technology? What are the advanced engineering methods that you are referring to there? Yes, certainly. Well, um, again, the, uh, the vehicle design is is quite minimalist. It is quite cautious and conventional overall to uh, to minimize the risk and to aid the manufacturer. <coughs> the big opportunity now, which uh, of course, many people in our sector are looking at is additive manufacture of the engines in particular. It's a massive opportunity because uh, it means you can re reduce the parts count, uh, streamline the way that you create the engines, reduce the number of parts that are involved in, in making them and putting them together to make the engines cheaper and quicker. The actual the process of the additive manufacture can be slower than, say, the machining of a traditional chamber. But once uh, once you consider it as a whole product, as as we're looking to do actually with our launching system, once we consider the whole system holistically, um, the uh, additive manufactured engines are a route to cheaper, quicker. Uh, and better because if you're forming your components in one with less joins, with less welding, less seals, less pipe joint, uh, pipe connections to be made, um, it, it can make, it sh should make, it can make for a more reliable system because it's making everything simpler. So um, additive manufacture is a big opportunity for us and companies like us. Um, and uh, generally versus the the older programs on which from which we take inspiration the uh, the improvement in 
manufacturing overall in manufacturing techniques and design specifically designed for manufacture um, that has continued to advance since, uh, since the era of Black Arrow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the design for manufacture and design for assembly is probably key with 3D printing, the fact that you can reduce joints, even some of, you know, the complexity of the parts in terms of their geometry, the kind of like finicky details that you can print that are very difficult to machine sometimes is uh, it's incredible. I, I recently went to a, a trade fair and looked at kind of just like two airspace uh, structures. One was printed, one was classically milled and the kind of difference in complexity of the part was just incredible. It like one looked kind of like this futuristic structure and the other one kind of, you know, looked like something that you had been built out of Lego almost. It was, yes. it was, it was absolutely incredible. So one of um, our prospective suppliers has commented that it's, um, it, it's almost, uh, that they're almost better starting, a, you know, drawing in new designers rather than trying to get designers that are used to thinking of machining. Uh, obviously, it's one way and all the other is they're complementary. Of course, uh, yes. but it, it is uh, it, it does require a different way of thinking, um, particularly for for the engines, for the cooling channels, that sort of thing. It means that we can create shapes which are better than we could have done. Uh, the pump uh, pump components. Um, I mean, we still we still require machining on the additive parts. Essentially, the additive system gives us. Uh, the sort of thing that may be cast in the past, well, plus the fact we can create structures that can't be created the other way. And then critical machining is done on those to uh, to produce the final product. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are currently two rockets under development as I've as I've seen online, the Skyrora One and the Skyrora XL. Could you perhaps, you know, describe those two rockets, what they will be doing and what missions they'll be flying? Certainly. So Skyrora XL is our uh, end goal at the moment, which is the um, the orbital launch vehicle, uh, three stages, and uh, as I say, are looking at around 300 kilos uh, into low Earth orbit, uh, some synchronous orbit. Uh, the three stages uh, gives us additional flexibility in the orbits we can go to. Uh, if we if we are launching multiple payloads, we can. Uh, provide a, a broader range of orbits so we can get people to the orbits they really want. Uh, and again, this, that is a where the peroxide comes in again because it, it makes our restart capability in space very reliable. Um, so that's XL, uh, about 20 meters long, about two meters diameter. So uh, very much comparable to, uh, to Black Arrow in, in that in, on its sort of scale, although we're a little bit bigger and we're all liquid, whereas Black Arrow had a third stage that was solid. Um, now, uh, we have we have extensive experience on the team, both of, of uh, large bi-liquid engines and also space launch of large vehicles. But we are a new team. So what uh, Skyrora One provides us with is a technological stepping stone. Um, it is a suborbital vehicle, single stage. Uh, it, it will be um, able to carry over 100 kilos to over 100 kilometers. So it's it's uh, in terms of suborbits, it's sort of middle capacity. Um, and its primary role is as a developmental vehicle for us, uh, both in the technology of the engines, the technology of the the tracking, the telemetry as we were talking about with the engine tests 
in, in my personal history, once you really come to do it, there's so much that comes out of the that comes out of the woodwork once you're actually really trying to do stuff that theory didn't come up with. So Skyroar One provides us with a complete um, a complete work through of engines of systems of launch operations of range operations for the team for our technology before going straight to a three-stage orbital vehicle and we are hoping that we'll be able to fly possibly the end of this year uh, probably more likely the beginning of next now but it's still uh, this year is still a possibility and um, we intend to recover that one as, as a matter of course and we hope that in future it, it could become a a, um, a useful vehicle for people as well, because there is quite a market for suborbital payloads. But initially, our focus with it is to help our development. Mm -hmm. So it's basically yeah, your technology demonstrator before you scale up to Skyora XL. Um, and then, I mean, in, in general, how do you see the UK space industry developing? I mean, you've you've mentioned that the UK government is very keen on funding new companies in this space. Uh, do you think that perhaps Skyora can be kind of like a keystone in further developing the industry? We, we hope so. Um, the, um, the UK has always had this, this strong satellite and, and uh, communications space industry, which wasn't necessarily always recognized by government or, or the broader public. The profile of the industry has become much better in recent years. Um, and uh, the UK Space Agency <coughs> has set this target of capturing a certain percentage of the global market by 2030. Um, and we believe we could really help with that. Uh, as, as the launch capability expands, the, um, the, the people developing and wanting to launch payloads as well will increase. And uh, we're, we're in a really strong position to, to capture a larger and larger scale, scale uh, percentage of that market as the government is interested in, and those of us working in the industry. So with Skyrora, we are uh, confident, uh, we, we're confident that we can be probably the first UK vehicle up. Uh, we're very positive on that. So we, uh, we're looking to be, to be first in the market. And uh, I think we can be a very big part of the industry as it goes forwards. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely excited what you guys are doing up there in Scotland, and I'm looking forward to what the what the year will bring. So, just just to close, where would you like uh, our listeners to go find out a little bit more about what you're up to, and in case they're they you know are engineers and they may be looking for job openings, how can they stay up to date with that? Certainly. Well, our website is skyroar.com. Quite straightforward, um, and uh, we're also on Twitter as well, which is. Uh, quite an active feed. I know there are many corporate feeds which don't do very much, but uh, we, we try and really make use of ours and connect with people and uh, transmit our events and such. As, as our developments go forwards, we, we hope to build more and more of a, a web presence because we are still, uh, the company itself is quite quite new and we still want to, we need to get more people knowing about us. Um, and there are careers links as well on the website. So we're, we're always interested to hear from people. Uh, we are expanding and um, yeah, we want to hear from enthusiasts 
who maybe wish to be part of such a program. Perfect. Yeah, I de- I also follow your Twitter feed, and it is it is an active feed. It's a it's a great feed to stay up to date what you guys are doing. So yeah, Robin, it's been absolutely great to chat to you. Thanks for having the conversation. Thanks for the invite. Great. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Skyrora and the Rocket program, then you can find detailed show notes at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family. Or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.